a listener production. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Borderland and I, Jacob Stanley, would give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. While Rosie is taking a few weeks off, I've got another special guest and if it isn't Mr. Bond. Caleb Bond, welcome to Just The Gist. How have you been? Oh, mate, surely you can do a better intro than that. Get the Bond music going or something, you know? (laughs) 006.5, licence to kill stupidity, I like to say. But how have I been? I'm just glad the election's over. Yeah, you're still on adrenaline high? Oh, no, I'm I'm well and truly relaxed now. I'm just glad it's out of the way. I worked about 16 hours on on election day, got in at... 10.30 and I don't think I got out of the office until about 2am, so (laughs) glad that's done and dusted. Sounds like an absolute blast. <laughs> Look, it's, no, it is actually good because it's it's a you know high paced, far fast paced day, and it's there's a lot going on, and you're constantly working and sorting through stuff. It, it like it's a good day. You mm-hmm. you are um, you're writing the first draft of history, which is quite fun. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for joining us again. This isn't your first guest appearance on Just the Gist. Um, you've stepped in as a co-host for Breaking News once in mm-hmm. the past when I was stuck up in the tropics. Um, but for any brand new Gistners who might not be familiar with you and your work, can you just give us a quick overview of who you are, what you do, why you're wearing a tie right now? Well, I'm wearing a tie right now because I like to sort of lift the tone in the office a bit. You know, someone, someone's got to lift gotta it up. got to balance out my hoodie. After, after lockdown, you know, sitting around in my pyjamas for three months straight, I thought, geez, I've got to put in some effort now. So I start, I'd never wore ties before, but I started wearing ties after that. Mm. But I'm, uh, I'm the weekend chief of staff at the, the Herald Sun mm. and uh, I write a few columns for the Herald Sun and for... The Advertiser back in Adelaide, where I'm originally from, and I uh, do a bit of work on Sky News and pop up around the... Anyone will pay me, you know, I'll do a bit of work for them. <laughs> <laughs> Voice for hire. He's anybody's who wants him. And, of course, you and Rosie have been together for coming up on... Well, it's nearly two and a half years. Wow. Well, it, w- it would be... Yeah, it would be pretty much two and a half years, because it was December 2019 we met, just mm. before... COVID came along. Yeah. We always say, though, it feels like it's been about 15 years because, yes, thanks to COVID, you guys were in isolation together in Sydney and then well, that's in Adelaide it. and then in Melbourne again. It, it really exhilarated things, that's for sure. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that was when we thought um, everyone was sent to work from home, uh, but we thought at that time that, like, state borders shutting was a conspiracy theory or something. <laughs> and so I asked for permission from the, the ties where I was then working to go to Sydney for two weeks. Because remember, it was going to be two weeks to flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. And so I got in the car and I drove and I just got over the border into Victoria. And I stopped in Mildura and had lunch with some friends. But half an hour later, Stephen Marshall, the Premier then, South Australia shut the border. Mm-hmm. So I continued on to <laughs> Sydney and I stayed there for three months. And of course, you know, I couldn't go to an office and Rosie couldn't go to an office or anything. Mm-hmm. So we were literally 24 hours a day around each other for three months, three months into our relationship. Like, mm-hmm. It was serious pressure cooker stuff. And a lot of the gistners followed that as it progressed. Let me tell you, Rosie has given <laughs> us quite frequent <laughs> Caleb Bond updates on uh. the show. 
And on that note, our fabulous producer, Lindsay, thought it might be fun for you to hear a little compilation of some of her favourite Caleb Bond updates, all of our favourite Caleb Bond updates, because I know you don't listen to the show, so you're probably (laughs) not even aware of what Rosie has been sharing. So, Lindsay, if you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Hit me with it. Everyone's been asking to see the turkeys. Mm -hmm. The turkeys came Mm -hmm. and... I cannot even tell you how hilarious <laughs> the turkeys are, starting with the size, which was not what I was expecting. Smaller than a postcard. Also, there's not, it's not three turkeys. It's a turkey, a peacock, and like a chicken. Mm. So I just very drunkly yelled at the woman on the phone, <laughs> I want the turkeys! Spano expands! And it's not. And, it, yeah, it is literally... I thought it was going to be like an A3-sized artwork and it's smaller than the palm of my hand. Um, I'm telling you all of this because I know my very supportive of my career boyfriend, Caleb, doesn't listen to the podcast. And I can't show you a picture of the turkeys until I give it to him for Christmas because he doesn't know it's arrived yet, so it's going to be a surprise. But as soon as he opens the present, I will post a photo on Christmas Day of the turkeys that I bought from a dodgy art auction on television at 2am. <laughs> Best gift you ever received? <laughs> oh, dear me. It, it, it was a, a great surprise to see those turkeys around. I'd been watching this bloody uh, art auction show, mm. you know, drunk at 2am for couple of years, I reckon, and and I always wondered, like, who's buying this stuff? Because the, they sell, like, 30 paintings in a night or something, and they'd have, you know, Debbie from Nowra or someone would call up and, and buy these paintings, and, and then most of them are, like, um, prints and etchings and this sort of thing. Mm. And we're sitting there one night, drunk, of course, and um, I, I think I just jokingly said, why don't we buy this thing? Next thing, Rosie's on the phone and we <laughs> bought this bloody turkey painting. And turkey. I'd, almost forgotten, I'd almost forgotten about it. And then I opened up this thing on Christmas Day and there's this gold frame with this tiny little painting. And anyone who went to um, some of the live shows, I think it, it first came out in Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. Um, the, the, the live shows that you could come and view the painting. I'm thinking that uh, as an extra source of income, on weekends we might have to open up our place as an art gallery or something <laughs> and people for a small admission fee can come and have a look at the They turkeys. can behold the turkeys in real life. Give it a crack, see how that goes. Lindsay, do you have any more? And anyway, the day before my birthday, he, like, said he had to go somewhere and he was very cagey about it. And and I asked if I could come because I thought he was going to the supermarket because where else do we go right now? And he was like, no, you can't come. And he got very weird and he was all like, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I guess he's doing getting a present or something. And so then I started to get excited because I was like, I told him not to get a present, but clearly he's getting a present. And so I was like, ooh. And so he goes off and he comes back and he's asking for wrapping paper and doing And I was like, okay. And so then the next morning I wake up, it's my birthday. He's like, do you want your present? And I was like, okay. Like by this point I was like, I've got a present. Like Mm. I was super into it. And so I unwrap (laughs) it. So the first thing I notice is it's in an Aesop bag. You know Aesop, they do like skincare and soap and all Mm, that stuff. Fancy hand wash, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, well, what is, 
what would he know to get me from Aesop? How does he even know Aesop is a shop? Like, this is not, I was like, he must have talked to Jacob. I was like, has Jacob told him to buy me something? But then I was like, I don't think Jacob is an Aesop person. I was like, what is this? Mm. And so I'm like, oh, this doesn't look like jewellery, but I guess I'll keep going. And so I opened the bag and inside he had bought me a very fancy Aesop bottle of post-poo drops. In instances where vigorous activity has occurred in the bathroom, dilute several drops of this carefully crafted product in the toilet bowl after flushing for the benefit of all subsequent visitors, i.e. Caleb. Because, listen, he's been complaining about my stinky poops. And I said to him, Caleb, okay, fine, this is funny. Like, well done. You, mm, like, yes. Nailed it. Like, smart, clever, good, solid burn. <laughs> Hilarious. But then I was like, but why Aesop? I said, who told you to go to Aesop? And he said, oh, I asked around. Like, I, and I said, what the hell do you mean you asked around? I said, who are you talking to about my stinky shits? And he's like, no one, none of your business. And I said, I think it is my business. I said, please tell me it was Jacob. I said, please tell me Jacob recommended this. And then I called you and asked you and you were like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't talked to him. So now I know that my boyfriend is talking to people about my stinky poops, getting advice about expensive Aesop drops to put in the toilet, which, by the way, work really well, and um, I don't know who he's talking to about it. How mortifying. <laughs> so, Caleb, can you reveal to us who recommended the post-poo drop? The most romantic no. gift the girl could possibly receive. I, I can't tell you who recommended the poo drops because I've had one too many reads. I can't remember. I, I, re I remember asking someone, what's a funny gift? I can get. Mm -hmm. And and someone sent these post boo drops. And I thought that fits the bill perfectly mm -hmm. because her turds absolutely, they are rank. It bloody stinks up the whole house. <laughs> and so I thought, this is perfect. I'll go and get these. But I'm so, I can't remember. I can't remember who it was. I've got to track them down because they did me a great favour. I reckon that's the best gift I've ever bought. Agreed, yes. <laughs> it's It's up there. We all got some entertainment out of that. All right, Lindsay, we've learnt nothing new. <laughs> Apart from just getting further confirmation of how bad Rosie's movements really can stink. Do we have any more that we'd like to play for Mr Bond? He has all these planter boxes hanging on the top of the fence and he was so furious, just furious the other mm. day because someone in the middle of the night, I guess drunk from the pub or whatever, reached over and just pulled two petunias just straight out of the soil of the plant box. So he woke up in the... And it, the, the funny thing was I had, like, been out and come back and I don't look in the plant boxes. And the second he walks outside, he goes, excuse me, Rosie, Rosie, did you notice this? Did you notice this? Why didn't you tell me about this? And I said, tell you about what? He goes, come and look at this plant box. I said, I'm not getting up to look at a plant box. He's like, come and look at the plant box right now. And I go, I'm like, what? And he's like... Clearly there's two petunias missing. And I was like, oh, two petunias. And he was so furious. Someone's vandalised the petunias. Someone's vandalised the petunias. Um, so, yeah, he was not happy. So we can't, uh, I really wanted to get a super, like, XC, like, fancy Christmas wreath to put on the front gate. And he's like, mm. they steal the hose to make bongs and they steal the petunias. We can't have a Christmas wreath. It'll just bloody get taken. 
Can't have nice things. Can't have nice things in our front mm-hmm. yard. <laughs> there you go. There's a little taste of us doing Caleb Bond impressions. Yeah, not great, I'll say. But... <laughs> oh, look, we've been working on them. They're getting better with time. Who steals petunias, for heaven's sake? Like, what did, did someone take them home and put them in the garden? Like, I just, I find it really confounding. Two petunias, and they happen to take the ones, like there's four in the planter box, right? Mm-hmm. And they took the two in the middle, so it just really <laughs> stuck out like dog's balls. I was like, why, why would you do that? Because I've had to replace all the flowers now because it's a different season. But they did, they stole the hose, someone stole a hose. <laughs> Presumably, I mean, that's what kids do, right? They go and make bongs out of them. But I, I got my car. Got done over. How's this? My car. This is a very Caleb story. Mm. My car got done over a couple of weeks ago because I'd left the garage door up, and mm. silly me, the car was unlocked. And so I, I go out to the car the next morning, and I open the door, and there's crap strewn everywhere. You know, rubbish and and whatever. And I've searched through the car to see if anything's been stolen. They've stolen my binoculars, which I take to the races with me. And and the binoculars have got like my racing uh, club membership cards on them. Mm. And I was like three days away from going to the Warrnambool Racing Carnival and I've had this panic, I've got no binoculars, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I had to go and buy more bloody binoculars. But of all the things, if, if you see a, um, a, a you know rough-looking character mm. walking around South Melbourne with um, a pair of Nikon binoculars around their neck, you can probably be sure they're mine. Like, what does someone want with a pair of binoculars? Oh, they must take him to a pawn shop or something and try and get some cash for him. But of all the things to take, they left the Ray-Ban sunglasses behind, but they took the bloody binoculars. Another mystery. Could just be another racing fan. And, um, listeners, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and um, post a photograph of the sign that Caleb subsequently put up <laughs> near his home to notify the culprit who stole those items um, that they had been caught on camera Ooh, yeah. and um, not to return again, but asking. I believe you asked if they could at least return yeah, the Yeah, pass. just bring it. Well, they're not going much, to have much use for cars with Caleb Bond written on them, are they? Unless they're also called Caleb Bond, but never mind. <laughs> All right, let's do this because you've got to head off to Sky News immediately after this, I believe. I'm a busy boy, aren't I? Bloody Having hell. A very, very big night. I went to visit Rosie a couple of days ago and she asked me what story I was going to tell her, uh, tell you for this episode. Um, and she was quite surprised and maybe a little bit disappointed because she was hoping that I was going to tell you something that was really going to make you clutch your pearls in disgust, <laughs> like the story she told at our live show in Melbourne about the woman who had that <laughs> sensual relationship with oh, the dolphin. Dear. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you, although maybe I've missed oh. an opportunity. We might have to have you back so I can do something like that in the future. I look forward to it. Instead, I have quite a bizarre and surreal story about a wealthy family in France who had roots in the aristocracy who were brainwashed by this dweeby little man who convinced them that he was their saviour and their protector and they willingly handed over not only all of their assets and their money to him, they also gave him all of their autonomy and free will and they essentially became this guy's slaves for the 10 years that they were stuck in his little mini cult. This is just the gist of Thierry Tilly and the Devedrine family of France. Now, have you heard anything about this one before? Never heard anything about them. But this bloke sounds smart. Oh, he had a skill. Absolutely, yes. We're going to learn all about him. 
Um, but first, we'll start by introducing the Devedrine clan. So their ancestors had been part of the French ruling class for a very long time until, you know, the revolution and the beheadings. Um, and for centuries, they'd been based in this super quaint little town called Montflancan. It's a very picturesque little village with heaps of gorgeous buildings. It's been there since the 14th century, and that's where the family's biggest asset is their castle, Chateau Martel. It was built in the 1600s and it looks a bit like the Disney castle from certain angles. Think, you know, turrets and towers all over the place. And it's smack bang in the middle of 50 hectares of land. And it was the centre of the Devadrine family's universe for centuries. It's where they'd all come together to spend their holidays, where they had all their major celebrations. And by the late 1990s, the core group of the Devadrine family consisted of the matriarch, the grandmother, everyone called her Mamie, and her two sons and one daughter. And I won't worry about getting into their names just yet because, honestly, it's confusing if you just hear it as a list, but you'll meet all of them in time. Each of those children had their spouses and each couple had a few kids. And they were obviously extended family members, but that's just the central cast of characters who ended up getting recruited into this little cult. Three generations of rich, sophisticated French folk with lots of properties and assets and high society connections and generational wealth. So they're primed for it. Like it always seems to be these sorts of people who get caught up in scams, isn't it? People mm-hmm. you think should know better. Mm-hmm. That's right. They're well-educated, they're quite sophisticated, but, you know, they want nothing more than to hold on to their money. Mm. That's the most important priority for them. We'll start by meeting Mamie's daughter, Ghislaine, who is a quintessential Karen. Her baseline mood is belligerent and disagreeable and she's the type of character that dwells on everything that's gone wrong in her life despite her enormous privilege. She feels like she's entitled to some sort of compensation for everything that she considers unfair because her life's not as perfect as she wants it to be. She also strikes me as a very good example of the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. Rosie and I spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago. Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? I am. Yes. Do you want to quickly give us a reminder? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I, I'm peripherally aware, but... Okay. Basically, for those of you who might have forgotten, um, the less intelligent and the less competent someone is, the less aware they are of how much intelligence they lack or how incompetent they are. That seems to apply quite well to Ghislaine in this instance. She's one of those people who is supremely confident in herself and in her abilities, as well as confident in her judgment of others and judgment of any situation she finds herself in. And basically the kickoff for this whole story is that Ghislaine decided she was qualified to step in as the director and headmistress of her daughter's private college despite having absolutely no experience in that arena. This college was a secretarial school where you could get qualified to become a really good executive assistant. And halfway through the school year, the college, despite its really good reputation, announced that they were going to have to file for bankruptcy and close before any of their students could finish their studies. And Ghislaine and the other parents decided this was unacceptable, so they stepped in to buy the school themselves 
Then they made the questionable choice of letting Ghislaine step up as the leader of this place, despite despite her lack of qualifications beyond so what, just being what, bossy. What's she done to, like, get this gig? What, how, how has she proven herself? She's the loudest person in the room. Right, okay. Yep. And she so they've just gone, you know, she'll be a good tantrum. advocate. We'll, we'll put her up there. Yep. She'll do it. Let's make the bossiest woman the boss. Geez, that always works. Yeah. So <laughs> she just sort of went, yep, I can do this, took on the job. It was a huge responsibility to try to turn the school around and make it a profitable business. It was very difficult and very stressful. She made it one of her top priorities to have the building and all its facilities repaired and restored, and her lawyer recommended a professional cleaning company to take that project on. The cleaning company was owned and operated by one of the lawyer's associates. That associate's name was Thierry Tilly. And in 1997, when he took on that project, Thierry Tilly got his first toehold with a member of the Devedrine family. Uh-oh who was going through a very stressful time in her life, which made her very vulnerable to being conned. Thierry Tilly came into the school with his contractors, ready to make the place sparkle. It was clearly going to take quite a long time because it was a very old building. It needed quite a lot of work. And for the first few months showing up every day, he didn't really spend much time with Ghislaine. But when they did interact, Thierry would try to impress her by dropping names of people that he knew were part of her social circle. And he mentioned to her that he was also part of an aristocratic family because he was descended from the Habsburgs, which (laughs) I love that you're laughing because that is a very fucking weird flex considering... The first thing you think of when you uh, think Habsburgs is inbreeding and yeah, genetic like chinless, defects. Chinless wonders. Yes. Yeah. So I'm one of them. Fucking Fantastic. me. La di da. So clearly he's a he's a massive social climber. Absolutely. Like he's trying to ingratiate himself. Yes, yes, yes. Every opportunity he gets, he's trying to impress Ghislaine, but she still just sort of thought of him as the help because really wasn't that impressive to her that yeah. he was a member of the Habsburgs. <laughs> As it would not be. Mm-mm. Then one day she mentioned to him that she needed to upgrade the school's computer system so that they could get ready for this new thing everyone was excited about called the World Wide Web. And Thierry was like, oh, I can help with that. I'm super good with computers. And so she let him and he sorted out this brand new computer set up for the entire college and Ghislaine was really impressed with his work. So they got to chatting a bit more and Thierry Mm -hmm. told Ghislaine more about his qualifications and professional history and it all sounded very prestigious and very, very impressive. He told So what are his qualifications? He said he was a lawyer who'd also been in the Navy he had a PhD in marketing as well as a master's in economics. And he's a busy boy. Uh-huh. Lived quite a life, especially he was in like his mid-30s at this point. <laughs> and he kept dropping the names of these big celebrities that he knew, like Bridget Bardot, and just acted like it was wow. no big deal. So Ghislaine believed him and he really caught her attention. And then when he offered to mentor Ghislaine's son, who was a bit of a delinquent, she was absolutely thrilled to accept that offer. And from then on, the two of them got quite close. They'd have lunch together all the time. They told each other everything that was going on in their lives. And then Ghislaine offered Thierry a job as the deputy headmaster of the school. Because if she could well. be the headmistress, he was even <laughs> more qualified than she was to be the deputy. 
and he accepted. She paid him a salary higher than her own and also gave him bonus after bonus because he was telling her that he was doing these amazing things that were resulting in great financial wins for the school. So, <laughs> she's, so, so he's saying they're all uh-huh. wins, yep. but they don't actually exist, and she's just swallowing it. That's right. Spoiler alert, oh, he was calling the books. <laughs> One day she asked him why someone with his background would be running a cleaning company and then accept a job <laughs> as a deputy headmaster at a secretarial college. Fair question. Uh-huh. And he told her, he was part of a very high-level organisation that had deployed him to rescue the school as part of a much bigger mission, but he couldn't say any more yet. He promised he'd reveal everything in due course, but right now he wasn't authorised to give her more information. And Ghislaine was captivated by him and she deferred all decision-making when it came to the school to him to make. And after a couple of years had passed, by 2000, they were best, best friends. Ghislaine was telling Thierry all the gossip about her family and the nuances of their complicated dynamic. He memorised everything she told him about them and he asked to be introduced to them. So she introduced Mm. Thierry to her mother, Mamie, and then to her older brother, Philippe, and they were very charmed by him. They found the names he dropped all over the place to be very impressive and that made Ghislaine very proud to have this incredible friend that she could show off. And then, of course, Ghislaine insisted the family get Terry to help them out when they ran into some legal troubles in the middle of 2000. So what had happened was, because he's got that law qualification, remember? Oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. Mm. Mamie had sold off one of the family's properties and the new owners had moved in and discovered there was a whole bunch of structural damage that was going to be really expensive to fix. So the new owners were suing the Devadrines, accusing them of knowing about the problems and keeping it all a secret. So the Devadrine family had an emergency meeting to discuss their options and Ghislaine told them the best thing they could possibly do would be to ask Thierry Tilly to help them out because he was a genius who had a law degree and was an expert in everything to do with real estate. And Mamie and Philippe, they'd met Thierry, so they backed Ghislaine up and said that they were big fans of his. And so Ghislaine's other brother, Charles Henri, said he was keen to talk to Terry as well. They had a chat on the phone. Charles Henri, just like everyone else, was very impressed. And Thierry was then invited to come and spend some time with the family at Chateau Martel, so he could get his head around the case. It was summertime, so the whole family was there and Thierry stayed in town nearby for nearly a full month so he could get as much face-to-face time with a the month. family as possible. Mm-hmm. God. He wanted to get to know each of them as intimately as he could in the time so he had available to him. He's committed. He's seriously oh, yeah. committed to that. And, and it's all premeditated, clearly. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's ready to go on this. This I find really interesting because it seems almost accidental that he got the opportunity to take on the contract mm. at the school. That just happened yeah. by chance. And I think once he saw he had that opportunity, that's it, when It he all just sort of fell on. into place. Mm-hmm. He saw he, how far he could take this. And he's done pretty well so far. Like, clearly oh. he's, he's picked her as a bit of a, you know, not much up top. Easy mark, yep. Yeah. 
Um, they didn't realise it, obviously, but he was studying them all very closely. They thought that he was just enjoying their delightful company, but he was really figuring out what made each individual tick and he impressed them so much. He knocked their socks off, blew their hair back at all the different areas that he had this incredible expertise in, like he had this amazing esoteric knowledge when it came to IT jargon and he had this inside-out understanding of the law and said he had heaps of experience with real estate stuff and he told them all these anecdotes about work he'd done in the past for the UN and for NATO. (laughs) And everyone in the family was just completely starstruck by him and then when he told them he'd been successful using his connections to make the lawsuit against them disappear, their admiration for him just suddenly evolved into, like, hero worship. They were beyond grateful to him for his help. But what what I don't get, right, so someone says to you, maybe it's because I'm a journalist and so Mm -hmm. I'm like hardwired to check everything, but if someone said to me that they were a lawyer and they worked for the UN and Mm -hmm. they worked for NATO and they're related to the Habsburgs and they know Bridget Bardot and I don't know, he probably knows how to change the weather as well. Like, (laughs) wouldn't you say to this bloke, oh, can you show me some photos? Like, have, Mm. have you got something somewhere? Like, how are people this stupid? I know. I think it really worked to his advantage that the internet really wasn't a thing at this time. And he was able to just tell all these stories in such a compelling way that he was able to just continue layering lie upon lie upon lie and they just lapped it up. But then he broke it to them that there was also some bad news. It turned out, he told them, that this lawsuit that had been filed against them was really just the first step in an elaborate plot against the entire family. Oh, dear. And he'd uncovered it. He said (laughs) it would be unwise for him to tell them too much right now, but he promised that the global network that he was part of was going to protect them from this nefarious conspiracy. He's from the New World Order, this bloke. Uh Uh-huh. But he couldn't tell them too much just yet. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. So at no point had they actually, like, said to him, mate, what what, what is this outfit you're part of, your secret society? That would come later. He promised he would let them know when it was safe for him to do so. (laughs) Yep, but he couldn't give them too much information too soon because that might put them into greater danger. Very dangerous. So he told them the essential next step he had to take was to review all their assets and their investments for them to make sure that they were all completely secure. (laughs) And they believed him and they trusted him so much they were more than willing to give him all the details of their accounts and their portfolio. And he told them, oh, no, none of this is secure at all. You guys are all completely vulnerable. Thank goodness I came along when I did. (sighs) If you just transfer everything over to my investment company, we'll be able to keep it totally safe under the protection of this secret agency (laughs) I'm a part of. I still can't tell you more about them, but I can promise you we will keep your money safe. Uh. And not just that, we will get you double-digit returns on a monthly basis, which is way better than the, the returns you're getting right now. You folks are just so lucky that I was here to step in when I came along. You know what they say, don't you? It, it, a fool and his money are soon parted, but mm-hmm. the real mystery is how they ever got together in the first place. Well, these like guys just inherited it's, it. It's just it's just the perfect example, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd think if you had that much money, you'd 
either A, get someone who actually knew what they were doing, or you'd work it out for yourself, wouldn't you? Like, how gullible can you get? I know, it's wild. The bizarre thing is, though, like, they handed over all this money to him. Somehow, for the first few months, he was able to show them he was getting incredible returns. Yeah, right. Although I dare say that he could have just once again been, been cooking those books. books. <laughs> He's already demonstrated a history of that. But they were really impressed with what he'd been able to achieve. And so, bit by bit, they handed control of pretty much everything they owned oh. over to him. And at the same time, bit by bit, he fed the family more details about the plot he was protecting them from. Now, if he'd just blurted out all these details about this conspiracy at the very start, I have no doubt the family would have just laughed him out of mm. the house. Instead, mm -hmm. he was very clever in the way that he would just gradually elaborate and strategically share details, usually with individuals rather than talking to them as yeah. a group. He just drip-fed them information until after a few months they all believed that they seriously were under major threat and things could get catastrophic. The plot he got them to believe was that Freemasons, mostly Jewish Freemasons... <laughs> this is how it begins. <laughs> ...wanted to destroy their family by first taking all their assets, making their lives unbearable, and then having them all brutally executed. <laughs> now... Caleb Bond, I'm making an assumption here because I know a lot of your friends are white male baby boomers. I'm assuming you would be at least tangentially familiar with Freemasons. Yes, yes? I am aware of the Freemasons. Okay, can you tell us what we need to know? Well, it's <clears throat> there's there's a, a a great series on Netflix. If anyone's interested in finding out about Freemasons, it kind of goes into what they actually do. But the, it, it's basically a group of men who, like, go into this secret society joint mm -hmm. and they wear funny cloaks and they come in and do some sort of weird ceremony and it's it's like a, a brotherhood order sort yeah. of thing. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, what it's really all about is is charity and, you know, they raise lots of money and they're in building societies and things like this, but it's all tied to this weird brotherhood gathering ceremony yeah. stuff, yeah. which is which is why people have always, oh, the Freemasons, the Freemasons, because, it, it, you know, it is kind of bizarre. Yes. There have been, for centuries, conspiracy theories. Oh, people that, reckon they sacrifice children and mm -hmm. all sorts of weird stuff. It's all just, sorts of QAnon-adjacent yeah, yeah, style yeah, beliefs yeah. about them being a shadowy cabal who's running the world. Yeah, like the New World Order, you know, they're in charge of the show. Yeah. And, I mean, it seems to us, but maybe we'll do an episode about them on just the gist one day, but it seems to me like they're really just a very mundane, bordering yeah. on lame um, social club, They're really. just a bunch of, yeah, it's a social club. It's a bunch of blokes who come together and raise money for charity, basically. Yeah. But Thierry Tilly tapped into that sort of underlying belief that is particularly rife in France that the... Freemasons control the real estate market there. So it wasn't completely preposterous for them to be hearing about this connection to Freemasons that have some sort of devious scheme they're working on. So what he explained was that the Freemasons had this deep-rooted belief that all members of the French aristocracy should have been executed during the French Revolution and they were now on a mission to eradicate any of the leftover families that had been spared during the revolution and hadn't made their way to their guillotine 
yet. The escapees. Mm-hmm. And he told the family that the Freemasons had now set their sights on the Devadrines as their next target. And <gasps> he told them that he was an operative in the top-secret Blue Light Foundation, which was <laughs> fighting against evil powers like these nasty Freemasons all over the world, working with the presidents of Russia and France and the United States of America. And he'd been assigned to Ghislaine's school so he could watch uh, over the Devadrines, knowing that the Freemasons' attack was coming any day now. And they bought all of this and he promised them he'd keep them all safe. They just had to follow his instructions. Uh, I just saw a pig fly past, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the blue, the blue light society. The blue light society. Did yep. you, so everyone remembers like blue light disco. Yes. Stuff. Like, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm surprised you remember blue light disco. <laughs> is that is that what it was all about? Like the blue light society was just going around organising discos for kids at school. <laughs> the funny thing is. It turns out later on there is actually the Blue Light Foundation. They are based in Montreal, Canada, uh, I think. They're oh, right. Registered. So it's a real thing. Well, they are registered as a humanitarian organisation and they're constantly, or they were, constantly talking about all these amazing humanitarian aid projects that they were working on, like right. building hospitals in poor communities in China and in Africa. Um, but... They never actually achieved any of that. It was basically just a cover for some dodgy, dodgy business dealings. So, so was he actually a member of this mob, or did he just steal the name? Working with the guy who owned and operated right. the Blue okay. Light Foundation. Yes, but the family didn't know any of that yet. They just sort of let the name wash over them. Yeah, um, it sounded mysterious and impressive enough that they were able, happy to just go with it. And because he'd fostered a personal relationship with each member of the family. He knew which buttons to press with each of them and because he had Ghislaine in particular wrapped around his pinky, she was always there to back up all of his claims and she was able to point to all these other aristocratic families as well who'd been attacked by the Freemasons Mm. and they'd lost everything. And so the family gratefully accepted Thierry's offer to help protect them, which he explained wasn't going to be cheap but he promised it was going to be worth it. So, Well, they, I mean, they've already handed over absolutely everything they've got, so what's right. a few more dollars? <laughs> yes. He just made sure that the money kept on coming in his direction and they handed it all over very willingly because he made sure they were very, very scared. And to help make sure that happened, a suspicious amount of bad things started to happen to the family, like cars were stolen every couple of weeks. One of their cars even caught fire while a member of the family was driving it. Farm equipment would go missing and then suddenly reappear a couple of weeks later. This was really gross. Cows on their farm would be found dead of mysterious causes. And some of their properties ended up being flooded by intentionally blocked drains and family members started getting mugged out in public. And, of course, Thierry told them it was all to do with the Freemasons' attack. They were sabotaging the family and they were playing mind games. So this has moved now. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not just him, you know, ripping some money out of gullible people. Like, this is getting into seriously bad criminal territory. Very, very sadistic stuff he's doing right now making this group of people super-duper paranoid. He told them they were always being watched by their protectors as well as by their enemies. So they started to get very reluctant to ever go out in public. 
Then he started to get more specific about who was in on the plot and he made the family believe their enemies were even closer than they could ever have imagined. He started identifying friends and family members that couldn't be trusted. He told Philippe, one of Mamie's sons, told his partner Bridget that he'd discovered her ex-husband was in on the conspiracy and he was planning to have her declared insane and put in an asylum so he could take all her money and he offered to help her and protect her as long as she gave him $150,000 to cover <laughs> the costs, which, of course, she did with gratitude. Oh, then dear. he asked if he could review the guest list for Ghislaine's daughter's wedding and he blocked a bunch of the family members from being invited because he said they were connected to the plot as well. They were Freemasons and they were too dangerous to have at an event like this. The only person in the family who was sceptical about all this was Ghislaine's husband, Jean. And because he didn't spend a lot of time with the family, he had a very busy job that kept him in Paris a lot of the time, he wasn't there to hear a lot of this madness. Mm. But he'd thought Thierry was a tool ever since the first time <laughs> they'd ever met and he'd been quite open. So he's, <laughs> he's the sensible there. one That's of, right. of this mob. He was the only voice of reason. And when he started to find out more about the level of control that Thierry had, he pointed out how ridiculous the whole situation was getting. Thierry didn't like this, so of course he made a plan to get rid of Jean. He told Ghislaine and her brothers that he'd learned Jean had more than 40 mistresses and was planning to... 40? 40. Mm, 40 mistresses? You think you're a busy boy. (laughs) Bloody hell. 40? Mm-hmm. How can you... you, One woman's difficult enough, let alone 40 of them. That's the kind of sex deviant that it turned out Jean was, yes. Bloody Uh, Jean, he gets around. mm Mm-hmm. And it got worse. It got worse. Um... (laughs) He was planning to steal everything from Ghislaine's bank account and move to New York with one of those women. <laughs> and then worst of all, sure enough. <laughs> Hang on. So, so he's got 40 mistresses, but he's finally going to settle down. He's picked down. one, like the that Bachelor. Makes sense. Yes. That makes sense. He's offering her a rose and sweeping her off oh, her feet to New God. York with all of Ghislaine's money. Yeah, um, so of course he was a member of the Freemasons um, and he'd only ever married Ghislaine so that then eventually he'd be able to destroy her. Uh, Ghislaine was devastated. That's dedication. That is dedication, by the way. Oh, if yeah. If you marry someone just to destroy them, uh, that's that, that's next level pettiness, the isn't definition it? of playing the long game, yes. Um, so Ghislaine... Devastated, grateful to Thierry for intervening before it was too late, and she followed Thierry's instructions. She emptied their joint bank accounts and gave all that money to Thierry so he could protect it. And then her brothers helped her confront Jean. She followed the script Thierry had written for her to tell Jean they were getting a divorce, and she kicked him out of their house. As he left, Jean threatened her, saying that he was going to end her which, of course, Ghislaine and her brothers just saw as being more (sighs) proof that he was in on the plot after all and made them more grateful to Thierry. Ghislaine changed the locks on all their properties, but she was still too scared to stay anywhere she thought he might find her, so she and her brother moved into her school because they thought that was the safest place they could possibly be. Thierry moved in with them. And Jean was suddenly homeless and penniless and exiled, and even his kids wouldn't speak to him because they believed their mother when she said their father was a Freemason who was out to destroy them. Should have just hit up one of his 40 mistresses. (laughs) He had plenty of beds that would have accommodated him by the sound of it. 
Um, then Ghislaine convinced her daughter to do the exact same thing to her own husband. Oh, Even though they'd only been married for a few months, the daughter kicked her husband out of her life, accused him of being an evil conspirator. And then Ghislaine's other brother, Charles Henri, ended up breaking ties with his business partner and what? shut down his medical practice overnight because Thierry made him believe that the business partner was also part of the plot. Is this bloke slipping something in the water? Like this, it's incredible. Like to get so many people mm-hmm. in one family, yep, to to just believe every single word you say, mm-hmm. as it just gets more and more outrageous. Right, like like you think at this point you start going, hang on a minute, who is this bloke? What's mm-hmm. going on here? And they're just getting deeper and deeper into it. And it, he's he's thought this through so well because mm-hmm. it's just getting more and more sophisticated. That's right. <laughs> and it has this sort of circular domino effect. So as one person's mm. you know, willingness to believe escalates, then that has a flow-on effect to the next yeah. person, the next person, the next person. And so they all kind of end up in this collective group psychosis yeah. almost that he's managed to land them in. And, you know, along the way they just got more and more willing to follow whatever instruction Mm. Thierry was giving them because he made them believe there was danger all around them and yet they hadn't actually been killed yet. Yeah. So they were relying on him to keep them alive. Just by his good grace. That's right. Um, They agreed to let him go through all their mail to make sure it was all safe. And they followed his instructions when he told them not to pay their taxes because that would reveal too much information to their enemies and make them too vulnerable. Then he told the family they should all move in together. That would keep them safer if they were all together in the one place. So they retreated to Shadow Martel and he said he would organise 24-hour protection of the grounds. They wouldn't see any of those security guards or snipers that he'd arranged to be in the forest surrounding the property, but at least they'd know they were there and they'd be able to warn the family anytime their enemies got too close. And Ghislaine was unofficially given the role of Thierry's enforcer because by this stage he was living in England because he had some legal issues that meant he had to flee France. So he was doing all of this via the phone, via fax and via email and telling Ghislaine exactly what to do on the ground. What? Mm-hmm. what? So he's doing all this from England? That's right. And and they've not at any point gone, oh, why is this bloke not allowed in France anymore? Mm-hmm. Yep. He hasn't been yeah, very candid honestly. with them about that. He's just told them that he's been deployed over to London for now. And they need to continue following his instructions, which he'd be supplying throughout the day. Some people just get what they deserve, don't they? <laughs> like, honestly, how, how can you be that stupid? Mm-hmm. That, that is, that is a, a serious level of stupid. Mm-hmm. We'll get to talking about that oh. at the end because there was some analysis done on these folks. Um, <laughs> their, their IQs were um, not great, I'm assuming. Well, actually, they were surprisingly high. Oh, no. That's the thing that's been, like, really surprising no. about this. All these psychologists and psychiatrists, when they conducted this analysis, they'd heard about the story because it ended up being all over the media. Yeah. And so they were expecting that they would be, you know, working with these people who were quite feeble-minded mm, mm. and hadn't been very well educated. And then it turned out to be the exact opposite. And, I mean, really, if anything, that 
stood as a compliment to Thierry Tilly that he was able to manipulate people who should have been able to see through these ridiculous deceptions. But it's so often people like that who get caught. And I, there must be a reason why. Mm. I don't know. But but there's got to be some sort of psychological reason mm. why people who have been, you know, successful in business and all sorts of things just get caught up in scams. Mm. Is is it is it that they have a, a lapse? I don't know. But th- there's got to be something to it. The two main factors for this family are, number one, as far as they were aware, they had never dealt with anyone who was untrustworthy or had lied mm-hmm. to them. So anyone that ever dealt with had their best interests at yeah. heart. Um, and then he was able to put... So they trusted what he said and then he created this sense of fear that just meant all sorts of rational judgment mm. became impaired for them. They're the two main factors that he sort of used to his advantage. But, yeah, you're you are you're absolutely right. I had the exact same thing. I was like, wow, these people, you know, maybe they're related to the Habsburgs because <laughs> they don't seem to be competent. something just not right, is there? Like, functioning humans, yeah. You'd just And the fact that at no point you'd go, hang on a minute, like, is this legit? Mm-hmm. And and you just get deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And, you know, I suppose it happens all the time. People fall into conspiracy theories and all sorts of different stuff. You just think that someone who has money mm-hmm. and so presumably would have enough people around them who mm-hmm. could, you know, advise them, when they get caught up in that stuff, you just go, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've done an episode on QAnon and the belief system that that's built on is so preposterous, but millions of people from around the world Mm. have succumbed to it. And, Mm. you know, a lot of those people are intelligent, they're well-educated, and they're also quite well-meaning people, Mm. but they end up being convinced because, Mm. you know, different methods have been used to win them over. Um, And in this case, another one of the tactics that Thierry was using was even though they were all together, he was having individual conversations with all of them and he would entrust each individual with secrets that he would say they shouldn't share with other members of the family because they might actually be working for the enemy as well. (laughs) So there was this massive sense of distrust even amongst the family. Anyway, so they're all together in this big chateau and Ghislaine was the only one who was allowed to answer the phone, and if anyone rang the house who wasn't Thierry, she'd just hang up on them instantly. They were getting instructions from Thierry more than 40 times a day, or he would just randomly call up and ask for updates on exactly what room everyone was in and what they were doing. So they had this feeling that they had to sort of report back to him. And then Every couple of weeks, he'd get in touch with them and tell them they needed to close all the shutters on all the windows immediately, stay inside because their enemies had been spotted on the grounds and the family would do what he told them. They'd hunker down for a few days, absolutely terrified, only speaking to each other in whispers until then he'd call again a few days later and tell them it's okay, the threat has passed. And then every now and then he'd call them and say, you need to do a sweep of the entire chateau, go through every corner of every room because there could be recording devices there which would cause its own level of panic in them. So he's he's, he's like playing with them like a cat with a mouse at this point. That's right. He's just taunting them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very, very cruel but obviously serving this purpose of make them as scared as possible because it just makes them as malleable. 
This bloke's a sicko, like mm-hmm. full-blown yep. sicko. Kills kills cows and mm-hmm. tortures human beings. Uh-huh, allegedly with the cows. But, um, well, yeah, I'm sure we might want to chalk us. it up to coincidence. The, <laughs> you can join the dotted line there. Um, anyway, they rarely left the house, and if they did, it was only ever to go shopping once or twice a week. They would always go in pairs and only with Thierry's permission they wouldn't talk to anyone outside the family because Thierry had told them everyone is a potential threat mm. and their neighbours got seriously worried about them because this was a big shift in behaviour and so friends would pop around to check on them and they'd just be shooed away and they'd be threatened if they got too close to the house. And Thierry even had them convinced that the police were in on the plot against them so the family just went into a paranoid <laughs> meltdown when the cops showed up one day to check on them And then a French newspaper published a story about how bizarrely the family had been behaving and so Thierry helped the family sue that newspaper for invasion of privacy, which meant all other news outlets were reluctant to report Mm. anything on the story. So did they sue successfully? They did, yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everyone just wanted to sort of stay away and the family's official statement was, we are adults and we can do whatever we choose to do and we are choosing to stay here in our chateau. Just leave us alone, please. And they turned that chateau into a compound and their family was now an 11-person cult who just did Mm. whatever Thierry told them to do and believed what he told them to believe, no matter how preposterous, like, for example, when Mamie's eyesight started to deteriorate because she was developing cataracts because she was in her late 80s, they all believed Thierry's explanation that it must be because their enemies were shooting laser beams at her (laughs) at night that she just couldn't see. Yeah. Laser beams. Laser beams, yes. Okay, that that for me. If, if if I were caught up in this thing, right, you get through all this, you've handed over all of your books, all of your businesses, all of your money, mm-hmm. you know, you won't go anywhere but the shops. But when you get to the point of a bloke saying you're losing your eyesight because someone is secretly shooting laser beams at you in your sleep, mm-hmm. that's the moment that you go, no, 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 hang on. There's, there's, there's something wrong here, right? Yes. Laser beams in your sleep. That's right. But then even if that went through your brain, the thing that made it more tricky was then straight away, Ghislaine's right there beside him saying, yes, yes, I thought I saw laser beams coming out of the forest last night. <gasps> this all makes perfect sense now. Oh, my goodness, Mamie, you've got to make sure that you're keeping the shutters closed. It's the lasers. What if the lasers can get through the walls? Ah, oh, panic, panic, panic. And, of course, things <laughs> just kept getting worse as the months passed by. The tax department wasn't okay with just not being paid, so they sent repo men around to the chateau to collect all the antique furniture and anything that wasn't nailed down so they could auction it off to cover the family's tax debt. And Thierry told them this is just part of the plan. That is just for optics. He needed to make it seem like the family was weak and vulnerable for a little while. It was all part of the strategy. But whether it was or it wasn't, it meant they couldn't live in the chateau at that point because they didn't have anything to sit on. So they all had to move to Philip and Bridget's little house a few towns over. And Thierry told them they'd only be there for a few days, maybe a week tops. They ended up living together in that house for more than three years, barely ever leaving. How many of them? Uh, Vacillated between eight and ten, I think, because some of the younger generation would be sent away 
at for stints at a time. For respite. Yeah. Get the hell out of there. And actually, I won't go into it, but when they were sent to New York or London on special missions, the living conditions they had there were even worse than they would have been experiencing back oh at home God. with the family. Um, yeah, those three years went past and they didn't even realise they'd just lost all sense of time because they were just absent from reality and just mm. focused on surviving every day. And throughout that whole time, Jean, Ghislaine's ex-husband, was trying to find a way to free the family from Thierry's control, but he was getting absolutely nowhere. And the media, like I said, just didn't want to touch the story no matter how much he was approaching them. And the family just kept getting more and more reclusive until suddenly Charles Henri and his wife Christine were invited to come and visit Thierry in Oxford to discuss their investments. This was only going to be the third time that Christine had met Thierry face-to-face, and I think the sixth time Charles Henri was meeting him. And why were those two invited? Because they were the official owners of Chateau Martel. Right. And to them, this felt like a great development. It felt like maybe it was light at the end of a very long tunnel. Christine was hoping this was a sign. Their ordeal was almost over. They got to Oxford and Thierry had arranged a shithole hovel of a house for them to stay in. They had no idea, but they were squatting there. And for the first few days, they just sort of hung out with Thierry and his wife and kids, who I haven't mentioned yet, but yes, he was married with children. And And, and so were the wife and kids in France with him the whole time or... They'd been with him in France and then they'd moved with him to London and then to Oxford. How much they knew about what was going on with the family, we'll never really know because the wife, Jessica, of course, just pled ignorance. And when, yes, he does end up getting caught, Thierry (laughs) um, was talking to the police. He never once threw her under the bus. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She just acted like they had guests who'd come over to spend time with them from France and showed them around Oxford. And then after a few days passed, Christine asked when maybe they could start discussing those <laughs> investments. And Thierry said, you know what, now's a really good time and invited her to come join him in his office. And the first thing he wanted to discuss with her was the transmission. And Christina was confused. She didn't know what he was talking about. And Thierry acted like it confused him that she didn't seem to know what he was talking about when he said the transmission. So he explained. He's a mechanic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm trying to draw a connection there. No, it's not coming. So he explained... Christine came from a noble family who'd been trusted as the guardians of a great treasure for the last few centuries, and that in each generation, one member of her family was given the secret knowledge of where and how to find that treasure, so that when the balance of the world was in danger, as it currently was, the treasure could be used to fund the fight against evil forces. And Christine just sort of sat there like, um... Uh, (laughs) And Thierry went on to tell her that she, Christine, was the chosen member of her generation. She had received the secret knowledge. She was the keeper of the transmission and it was time for her to reveal it so they could access the treasure. It was time for them to go to war with the evil powers. The Blue Light Foundation, he could finally reveal, was an offshoot of the Knights Templar like from oh. the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. 
and they were ready to destroy the Freemasons once and for all. And wow, Christine, again, just, just sort the of sat there like... blue light disco boys are about to take on the Freemasons. <laughs> Christine, the all-knowing Christine, she's got the treasure. <laughs> My God. This is just bringing like, out the big guns, yep. It, gets, it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder mm-hmm. every moment. So t- tell me Christine mm-hmm. at least wakes up to this. She's just like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. I absolutely have never been given any sort of generational secret. I don't know anything <laughs> about this treasure. And Thierry tells her she must have just blocked out the memory because his boss oh, in yeah. the Blue Light Foundation was there in the room when she received <sighs> the transmission because the they trans- were involved in the ceremonies that happened when the transmission was passed from generation to generation. So he knew for a fact that that knowledge was somewhere in her brain and he was going to help Christine recover that memory. My God. And so he informed some of the other members of the family all about the transmission and got them to help with trying out different tactics to coax (laughs) the memory out of their mother, wife, sister-in-law. They would beg her. They would yell at her. They would interrogate her for hours. Thierry even convinced them to lie and say that they'd also seen the evidence that she'd received the transmission. transmission. (laughs) They forced her to spend hours every day writing lines, (gasps) affirmations like, I can remember, I will remember, I can remember, I will remember, hoping that that process would somehow release this repressed memory from deep within her brain. And this went on for almost a month before Thierry then came up with a theory that when she'd come of age, Christine had attended a coming-out ball in Brussels. And so he figured that must be the location of the treasure, a vault in a bank (laughs) in Brussels. And Christine was like, oh, maybe, I guess. I mean, I I remember my coming-out ball, and I don't remember anything to do with a bank or a transmission, but... (laughs) transmission... I'll go to... It sounds like it comes down from the aliens. Transmission. <laughs> Seriously. Like, mate, at least make it halfway believable if you're going to do this stuff. The transmission. Like, could you make it any more obvious that what you are organising here is a crackpot cult? <laughs> like, it's like it's like he's trying to give them just little crumbs to say, look, you know, at any time, if you realise I'm I'm a crook, you can back out of this. And every single time they're like, no, 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 nothing wrong here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. At some point I think there was a bit of this sunk cost fallacy involved <laughs> that they were like, hey, if we've made it this far, <laughs> all we can really do is hope that, yes, there is a transmission and there is <sighs> an incredible treasure that's going to be used to save the world. Otherwise, and he's just having we look fun. like fools for being led up to this point. He's just having fun at this point. Exactly. Like he's just making it up. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> also, I love that you think car when you hear transmission and I think sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> <laughs> you transmit an STI. <laughs> it's only because I've had a couple of European cars and the bloody transmission's blown. I had a Fiat 500. Great little car, I convertible Fiat 500. Mm. But, oh, you've been in it. You were I have. In, you were in it with the roof down. We had down. the top down. It was fantastic until Booning the transmission the of blew up. Oh, sad story. Bloody Italian cars, don't buy them. <laughs> All right, so these guys went off to Brussels and they weren't allowed to take a car. They weren't even allowed to take um, 
an airplane or even first-class rail travel, they had to go by bus because, of course, Thierry's in control of all the money and he turned out to be quite cheap when it came to spending (laughs) on this group of Particularly with other people's money. Mm. Um, They spent a few days there and they visited every single bank in the city inquiring about whether or not Christine's family had an account there and no banks had any record of Christine or her family whatsoever. Thierry was calling them every 15 minutes and every time he'd be on the phone, he'd yell at Christine for failing and failing and failing again. So she was being berated to the point that she just desperately hoped that she would get to one of these banks and somehow it would turn out that it was the location of this treasure that deep down she knew was made up, but even still she was hoping I can, turn up I can almost see it. I can almost see it. Like, you know, they're rocking up to these banks. Do you have the treasure? Show me the treasure. Where is the treasure? And these these bank tells them, we know about the transmission. About? We want the we want the treasure, the transmission. <laughs> and they're like, okay, anyone got the phone number for the nearest like psych ward or something? Who are these people? <gasps> You've got our pile of rubies and emerald <laughs> and gold that's gonna save the world. Help us, please. Um when, after a few days, they'd been to every single bank in Brussels, they had to admit defeat and go back to Oxford, where, of course, Thierry was terribly disappointed but said he wasn't giving up. Not happy. A few months later, Thierry summoned the rest of the family to come and stay in Oxford. It was 2008 by this point, and he set up a family meeting where he revealed some new information that had just come to light. He told the family that Christine had not only received the transmission from her biological family, she'd also been given the transmission for the Vadreen family because the Vadreens, of course, were another family who'd been trusted to guard a sacred treasure that would one day be used to save the world. And Papa Vadreen, Mamie's husband, had had an affair with Christine and had chosen Christine to be the person that he revealed the location of the treasure to. And this was shocking news to everyone in the family, most of all to Christine, who, of course, fiercely denied all of this. But the rest of the family, just like always, believed everything Thierry said and they all started abusing Christine oh, for having no. been unfaithful. And He's also, good at inventing affairs, this bloke, isn't he? He can 40, spin 40 mistresses. And... Yes, to do with infidelity in particular. Yeah, that's his favourite genre. <laughs> um, she tried really hard to defend herself, but everyone just kept telling her she was selfish, she was greedy, she was trying to keep both of the treasures for herself. They had all turned on her immediately and they got more and more vicious. They forced her to sit at a desk facing a wall and told her she wouldn't be allowed to move until she revealed where they could find both the treasures. And Thierry instructed them not to let her sleep. If she went a few (coughs) days without sleep, maybe that would be what unlocked the memory. So they took turns on shift watching her to keep her awake. No. Mm Mm-hmm. Anytime she'd start to nod off, they'd pinch her or yell at her to wake her back up. She wasn't to leave the chair, not even to go to the toilet, so she would just go where she was sitting. And all of this was intended to start motivating her more intensely to remember this hidden (laughs) secret that had been locked away in her brain that this psychopath had just invented. 
they would only give her one small meal a day and a tiny allowance of water. And as you can imagine, this went on for more than a week. It had very serious health effects ongoing. Well, nothing motivates me more to remember something than sitting in my own crap. <laughs> oh, seriously. It is It is powerful, yes. <laughs> Um, eventually this sort of reached its crescendo when Thierry got so angry at Christine because by this stage she was just randomly spouting out Mm. sets of numbers, hoping that the numbers would mean something. Every time she did that, Thierry would take it away to his office and then he'd come back in a fury saying, that was complete garbage, you made that up, you're a liar, everyone's fury would bubble up again. The final time she did that, Thierry got so angry he threatened to flay Christine and to shoot her in the head and he started physically beating her on the back with his fists. And then when even that didn't work, he said, all right, well, we've got no option then. We're going to have to sell Chateau Martel. If we can't get our hands on this (sighs) treasure, then we're going to have to just sell off your one remaining asset your castle. How convenient. This seemed to snap everyone to their senses very, very briefly, but only in the sense that they said, no, it's not an option to sell the castle. You're going to have to just mortgage it and then that'll give you a bit of money that you can use to fund the Blue Light Foundation who clearly are in desperate need of cash. And so Thierry went ahead and did that, took out a mortgage against the chateau And then, because everyone had sort of reached this state of exhaustion and trauma, layered over the top of their paranoia, he was able to trick them all into signing papers that allowed him to sell the chateau after all. So now the family had nothing. And they were all there in Oxford, squatting in these crappy houses and apartments. Thierry had bled them dry completely and they had nothing left to offer him. So he told them they'd all need to get jobs. If they wanted to maintain the level of protection they were receiving from him, they were going to have to get jobs, and that meant they got jobs at places like Nando's and Pizza Hut. One of them got a job with a gardening company, and Thierry made them hand over 90% of what they earned so he could continue to fund their protection. These people are genuinely cooked in the head, aren't they? (laughs) Imagine, imagine someone... Imagine someone saying to you, you know, I've, I've, ju- I've taken everything you've got. Mm-hmm. I've just sold your property. Now you've got to go and get a job and give me 90% of your income. That's right. No, I, I, I'd tell them where to go. I but know. what? What? I know. What? And what you've got to keep people? in mind, one of these people is a qualified lawyer. One of these people is an obstetrician Gynecologist, like, and, and and they've had money. That's right. They've had money, mm-hmm. and now they're like, we've got no money, and we're handing all of our money to some other bludger. Mm-hmm. And the only job I'm qualified to get is at Nando's. Nando's, apparently. yeah. But it turned oh. out to be a good thing that they were these, all forced to get jobs. One, that, that one that got a job gardening, probably the one who stole my petunias. <laughs> It'd be that bloody stupid. God, my. These people are. I'm fascinated that you say they've got high IQs because because this it just it does not compute. I know. How, how do you let that happen? Mm-hmm. Bizarre. But this little twist of them getting jobs ends up being a positive because this is how Christine ended up escaping. She got a job oh. at a catering company and the French man who owned the business, he was a guy called Robert, went by Bobby, he could tell there was something up 
with her. The way she spoke suggested she was from a fancy family and Bobby was curious how she ended up in Oxford working for minimum wage. And she was very vague at first about all the details, scared that he might be part of the enemy plot or he might also be a spy for Thierry. So she didn't open up to him. And then a few days later, Thierry came to visit Bobby and started telling him about investment opportunities in this new business that Thierry was setting up, hoping he could seduce Bobby into giving him a few thousand pounds. And Bobby could see right through Thierry. So as soon as Thierry left, Bobby went straight to Christine and told her he thought this guy Thierry was Mm. a crook and a creep. And Christine still thought this could be a trap but she told Bobby where he'd be able to find that one news article that had been printed about them and how their family had changed their behaviours so drastically. So he did a bit of research and he was horrified by what he learned. As you would be. Uh (laughs) And the next day when Christine got to work, he promised he was going to help get her out of this situation. So so this he has started to unravel this of his own volition. That's right. Because because he sent them out to interact with the rest. After for years saying Mm -hmm. you cannot interact with the rest of society, he's told them to go back out to society. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the minute they did... People started to ask questions about why they were acting so bizarrely and then the whole thing ended up crashing down. What a dimwit. (laughs) How can you get that far? How do you get that far, so committed to it? And then it like it, it's like at the last hurdle, you've just gone boom, 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 boom. Yep. He Seriously. blew it all for Nando's and Pizza Hut wages. <laughs> <laughs> he was God, pocketing. God bless Nando's. Yeah. Um, so Bobby helped Christine contact her sister and her best friend, who she hadn't spoken to for years and years, and together they arranged to help get Christine back to France in secret. The day she left, she just acted like everything was normal, even though she was terrified that Thierry was going to catch her. And she went off to work, and when she got there, Bobby arranged for her to be taken to the train station where her friend was waiting for her and took her safely back home when she got there. She called her husband, Charles Henri, and left him a voicemail explaining what was going on. And, of course, Thierry and the rest of the family were absolutely furious that Christine Mm. had betrayed them. Traitor. Yes. And it just made them even more paranoid than they were previously uh, because they thought she still had access to these two treasures that belonged to their family and what if she chose to give them to their enemies instead mm. of handing it over to the Blue Light Foundation. So Thierry tried to force Charles Henri to divorce Christine. Charles Henri refused, so then his children turned on him and the whole family just sort of descended into this chaotic infighting amongst each other. Meanwhile, over in France, Christine's friends set her up with a lawyer who specialised in laws related to cults and brainwashing and specifically Scientology-related cases. And together with Jean, Jelaine's ex-husband, she pressed charges against Thierry for everything he'd done. Too right. Uh Uh-huh. The problem was, though, and this was a pretty big hurdle, the English government wouldn't extradite Thierry back to France. Yeah. Why not? He had English citizenship or something and... Basically, they looked at the laws and said, no, it wouldn't be legal for us to send him back. Really? So the French authorities got creative. They had Thierry's phone tapped, and when they heard him talking about a trip he was planning to Zurich, they made a plan to arrest him the second he set foot in Switzerland. 
That happened in October 2009. He was escorted out of the airport in handcuffs, along with the man that Thierry had claimed was his boss, a guy called Jacques Gonzalez, who was the head of the Blue, the Blue Light, Light Foundation. <laughs> so, so, so this has been going on for like a decade now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly, close to 11 years, yeah. Um, all the Devadrines who were still in Oxford chose to believe this was all just a charade at first, that Thierry was putting on a show to deceive their enemies, but eventually they had to come to terms with the fact that he was in jail and this terrified them. So they stopped going outside, stopped going to work, just stayed home together in fear. They'd never felt so vulnerable. Mm. And then a few weeks later, Christine and her lawyer and Jean and a few psychology experts and a police person and a journalist, they came together as a plan- as a group to begin the exfiltration process. Now, once upon a time when members of a cult would be rescued, they'd be like, kidnapped and locked in a room so they could be deprogrammed. We've all seen those sorts of scenes in movies. Happened in The Simpsons once. Everything's always happened in The Simpsons once. Um, It usually happens in The Simpsons first. True, yes. Oh, by the way, I meant to say, The Simpsons, they have a really good take on the Freemasons with the stonecutters. That's probably the (laughs) strongest area of knowledge I have of the Freemasons is based on the satirical version on The Simpsons. Anyway, um, turned out that was actually very damaging to people who went through that deprogramming process. No, Mm. wouldn't believe it. So they use a much gentler approach these days. Um, So gentle that the first time they tried it, it was completely unsuccessful. Um, But then on the second go, they were able to overcome the family's paranoia and started having rational conversations with them as a group and as individuals. Mm Mm-hmm. No surprise, Ghislaine was the most resistant to accepting that it had all been fake. She kept doing mental gymnastics to try to explain how Thierry could still be the hero of the story and just when it seemed like she'd come to accept it was all a lie, she'd then regress. So she was a bit tricky, but eventually they all did return to reality and they were completely shocked at their own behaviour. They were Mm. horrified and they all to this day struggle to believe that they did the things they did. They well, said, it's like they've been in some form of psychosis or something, right. isn't it? Yep. Yeah. They said, we were hijacked. It was like he just somehow managed to take our brains out yeah. of our skulls and replace them with someone else's for a decade. And looking back, especially when they were telling each other these stories and unpicking all these different memories, the thing that first and foremost they were feeling was a sense of pri- uh, surprise along with mm. a massive sense of shame for all the things they'd done and for how stupid they'd been. Um, So they were given lots of psychiatric support over the next few years while they were getting ready to take Thierry and Jacques Gonzalez to court, which didn't happen for another three years. Um, It wasn't until 2012. So when you say take them them to court, you mean criminally or they were like suing to get their stuff back? Look, I didn't... (sighs) examine a lot about um, the French legal system, but there are two different types of criminal trial. One has a jury and one is just in front of a magistrate. They decided to go with the magistrate version because it was going to be less traumatic for all of them. Um, It did, however, mean that um, the maximum sentence for either of the defendants was going to be 10 years. So that was the trade-off they made. That Thierry Tilly was going to get a lighter sentence than if Mm. they went with the jury option. Um, but they just knew it was going to be too difficult for them to go down that path. So 
when the trial started, there was already obviously a lot of media interest in the case because it was so bizarre. But then when Thierry started testifying in his own defence, people really started to get interested because what had only been a horror story up until this point started to evolve into a bit of a comedy because when he would get on the stand, he would just ramble and ramble and ramble to the point that the judge and his lawyers would tell him that he needed to just be quiet. And the sorts of things he was saying were even more ostentatious than what you've heard so far. Like he said that he had played soccer and tennis professionally and was also briefly a professional skier. And he spoke about those degrees he had in law and business and economics and that PhD in marketing, as well as a PhD in detecting counterfeit currency. And he had a couple more masters than he'd mentioned previously, including one in property management. (laughs) And he'd been such an intelligent student that he'd been plucked out of university to go to a special secret school where he learned to become a diplomat who was really a spy. And he was also a qualified pilot. He was the founder of Greenpeace. He was the world's best chess player. He was the richest man in France and no one knew this, but he was actually the king of Israel. <laughs> and when he'd made he's, his... he's, he's left out the most important bit. He's involved with the blue light disco. Right. You can't, can you leave that out? We're working is, with Putin and who was the president at the time, amazing. George Bush. Amazing. Yeah. So the, the, you, as a journalist, you just, you can't write this stuff. I mean, you can write it when it happens in court. But, I mean, like, th- there is no fiction writer on earth mm-hmm. who could make this stuff up mm-hmm. better than you can find in a courtroom. Like, I've done a little bit of court reporting and, and honestly, like, you, you can never have more fun mm. than hanging around the magistrate's court at 10 a.m., on a Monday, <laughs> and you get some weird and wacky people come through for some very strange crimes, uh-huh. and you're like, my God, I just could not script this stuff. <laughs> and it's real life. <laughs> Do you want to give us one of your favourites real quick? Oh, it, um, it's not a criminal trial, but mm. I, I went into this case once about... Um, these people had a dog and they're suing the local council Mm. because the council had um, demanded the dog be destroyed, killed, Mm. because it supposedly bit the postie. And so these people get up in court and say that the postie has a vendetta against all dogs in Adelaide <laughs> and that he wants all dogs to be killed. <laughs> and they're like, this this postie, he's a dog hater. And the postie gets up and he's like, this dog, you know, the gate was always open and this dog would follow me up the street and he'd, and he'd bite my boot. It's like... My God, people are paying for it. We are paying for this as taxpayers. We are paying for the court system to hear a case about a postie who supposedly wants every dog in Adelaide to be killed. It's just, and stuff like this, it happened. You wouldn't believe it. It happens all the time. All the time. I went went to a case once about a a guy who got fined for telling a um, a parking ticket Mm. inspector to go F himself. And um, he, like, they charged him with indecent language or Mm. some crap like this. And so this dude had a lot of money. He'd he'd formerly owned, like, a basketball team or something. Mm. And he was like, bugger it, I'm going to fight this. So he rocks up to court 
with a, a full legal team. This, this is the magistrate's court. He rocks up with a full legal team to challenge like a $200 parking <laughs> fine, uh, this fine on top, that he'd bloody sworn at the officer or something. And you wouldn't believe it, 15 minutes in, he realises there's no way he's going to win this and he calls it off. He would have spent thousands of dollars <laughs> sorting all of that out and within 15 minutes, boom, falls over. Like you just... You you wouldn't believe this stuff was real, but it happens in courtrooms all over the country every day of the week. <laughs> it's 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 truth is is seriously better than fiction, stranger than fiction. It's uh, it's just too good. Completely agree, and that guy's just a perfect example of when someone's got money, but it just has. I been know able more to money than brains. sense. Yes, more money than sense. Oh gosh. Um, so, yes, this was probably the most entertaining trial happening in France, possibly the world, in the year 2012. And then things got even more sort of comical when Thierry Tilly's father took the stand and set the record straight about a lot of the <laughs> stories Thierry had been telling because it turned out that um, his stories and claims that his mother had been an Olympic an ice skater, not true, no. Um, and his stories that his father was a war hero who'd been <laughs> in the Navy, also not true. His father had been a chauffeur. Thierry had lived at home until he was in his 30s, didn't move out <laughs> until he'd got married. Um, and as all the records backed up, he actually didn't have any form of tertiary education. Oh, he'd no. tried but failed to get into a naval academy. Then he'd gone on to start up a bunch of businesses over the years that had all failed and he kept getting in trouble with the law for ripping off investors, not paying taxes, doing dodgy deals, and that's why he'd had to move from country to country. But now we get to the best bit because it turned out that Thierry had been a member of the Freemasons (laughs) and he was kicked out for embezzling. Uh, oh. The chickens always come home to roost, don't they? The best <laughs> of the details. See, yes. what, what always gets me about these people is if you're that good, if you're that smart mm. that you can convince a rich family, like almost every single member of that family, to hand over everything to you, mm-hmm. you have complete control of them mm-hmm. for the better part of a decade, could you not take that smarts? And just start a business. Right. And be successful in business Mm -hmm. and make your money totally legally and be able to go to bed at night and put your head on the pillow and know that you wake up the next morning and you're never going to have a copper knock on your door. Mm -hmm. Like, why do people choose to go down that road? Like, it it must be the thrill or something. Like, you look look at bikies all the time. Mm -hmm. So many of these bikies own businesses. Mm -hmm. Like, they're successful people. But they've just got this little thing in their brain that's like you've got to be an outlaw, and so they just do stuff that compromises them. Like, mm-hmm. what, did, did, what did, don't you just want to live as as simply and legally as possible so you never get in trouble? There's got to be some sort of thrill that I comes know. from you know subverting the system in this way. And Caleb, you wouldn't know because you don't listen. But every couple of months we tell a story about a scammer, and it comes yeah. back to the same thing. Yeah, this person had so much potential yeah, if they all, had turned always. it into a legitimate business and applied always. themselves. <laughs> they always. could be ruling the world right now. Um, 
Yeah, so it is yet another example. Although in this case, um, like this guy, it seems like he he was just not well at all. And when he'd been examined, Thierry Tilly, um, sure enough, it turned out they said, oh, yeah, he's he's got all sorts of mental health issues here. So, yes, he is an evil genius, but he's also quite unwell and we're going to need to put him into treatment. <laughs> so where is he now? So he was sentenced to eight years in prison. Then he appealed and when he went to that appeals court, he ended up having the sentence bumped up to 10 years because <laughs> the magistrate decided he deserved the maximum penalty. Like I said, that was 2012. So in theory, he would be getting out this year. This year. But um, I did see in a YouTube video, because I haven't been able to track down exactly what's happened, but in one of the YouTube videos about this whole affair, they said that um, halfway through his sentence, he had to be moved full-time into a psychiatric health unit right. and that he was still there. That was as of 2020. So yeah, I don't okay. really know. The thing is, though, over the years, he'd managed to steal about 7 million euros from the family, of which they were able to track down how he'd spent about 5 million, 2 mil. Oh, so we don't know where it, it is. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much all So there was gone. not a cent left. Hardly anything they've been able to recover. Obviously, they seized his luxury cars and... Um, Rolexes and the haute couture gowns he was buying for his wife. and So he was living know. the high life. Oh, yeah. He was making sure that he and his family were well looked after. The, the, the wife, by the, the way, that she knows nothing. No. Sergeant Schultz. Mm-hmm. I know that, I think. Mm-hmm. She oh, just thought God. he was really just, good oh, at All this money is just rocked up. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so he... When and if he does get out, they suspect that he will actually have access to those two million euros no. and may be able to continue living oh. the high life and they may never be able to get it back from him. Um, and in the meantime, the Vidrine family, they're still trying to get back on their feet because, you know, they went through 10 years of paranoia and trauma, mm, mm. lost everything. It's been really, really tricky for them and a few of them have dedicated themselves to making sure this never happens to other people in the future and, you know, campaigning for stronger laws around people who use brainwashing tactics and, you know, taking advantage of people who are in any way disadvantaged. But I really think the great irony here is that this all happened because Auntie Ghislaine thought she could run a school and had she not had that belief in herself... She never would have crossed paths with this guy and none of this ever would have happened. Got yourself in too deep. Mm-hmm. That's and what happens. That's the danger of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that <laughs> is just the gist of the Devedrine family and how they were conned by Thierry Tilly. And if you want more, there is a book that I'd recommend. It was written by Christine along with her husband and her two children called We Were Not Armed and that's an account of from the very beginning right through to the very end. Um, that's available in English. Uh, there is also a book that um, Ghislaine wrote called Diabolique. With, uh, she wrote that with Jean. She reunited with her husband. They got remarried. Um, that I could only find available in French, but there is a YouTube series called The Cult of Thierry Tilly, which is based on that book, Diabolique. Um, And the main place that people sort of discover this story is a relatively famous Vanity Fair article called Aristocrats and Demons. 
Um, and that broke in around 2010, just as the family was being rescued from the clutches of Thierry Tilly. So obviously I'll put links to all of those in the show notes as per usual. And you can go and dive into more of the twists and turns because trust me, I had to leave a lot out. <laughs> this was a very lengthy, detailed story with all these different characters who were being manipulated in all sorts of different ways. None of them as crazy though as the transmissions. I just I cannot get over like of of all the things you could have come up with terms to use <laughs> transmissions like it it does seriously sound like the the aliens have sort of descended in the flying saucer and they've tapped into some sort of brainwave and they're like mm-hmm. you must find the treasure like. Seriously, mm-hmm. transmissions. Mm-hmm. If you've not picked up at that point that this is a load of bollocks, then there is no hope for you. <laughs> there is no hope for you. You really don't stand a chance, no. No. Uh, I think something that's really delicious as well in that Vanity Fair article several times, they compare this story to some of the crap that's been spouted by Dan Brown. And I think oh. that when it comes to the transmissions, that's particularly apt. <laughs> Some people, uh, you you just like, how is it real? Mm -hmm. How is it real? And and you and I sit here as, you know, we'd like to think reasonably sensible people and it makes no sense to us Mm -hmm. and I'm sure it makes no sense to pretty much everyone who's listening, Mm -hmm. but but clearly there are people who just get swept up by this stuff Mm -hmm. and everyone thinks, oh, it won't happen to me, Mm -hmm. but it happens to someone that's and right. I'm sure they all think it won't happen to them too. Yep. And several of the psychologists and psychiatrists who spent time with this family, you know, they sort of end their statement with saying these were normal people. They weren't in any way, you know, disadvantaged mentally. Um, mm. It's just that he was able to take advantage of their inherent trusting nature and that could happen to any one of you. So, yeah, be careful, what- everyone. What is the quality in someone that makes them able to be a cult leader? Where, where does that come from and what is it? Because some people clearly have it. Uh, most people don't, obviously, but, mm. but some people just have an innate ability I think to convince people of things. Yeah, narcissism. That's yeah. the main thing, that you know, fundamental deep-rooted belief that you are better than other people and yeah. therefore have the right to control them. And so other people just believe it. Mm-hmm. They get on board. Yep, you start believing your own bullshit. Ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this guy, Thierry, he did such classic things to control these folks, like even just telling them to shut the shutters for days <laughs> at a time and he told them to get rid of all their clocks and calendars so they had no idea what the date was, what the day of the week was, like time just became quite meaningless to them. Like that's he'd, sadistic. Very. He'd make that them is quite sadistic. sleep deprived because he'd give them tasks they'd have to do late at night, like sweep the house for um, bugging devices mm. um, or he'd call the house in a panic and tell them they needed to run around and close all the shutters, whatever. So he was sort of affecting their mental faculties in that way. And then pretty much every interaction they had with him, he would say something that would undermine their self-confidence because he'd give them a bit of a, a slap and a kiss 
So they never really understood exactly where they stood with him or where they stood with other members of the family because he was spreading gossip and lies between them all as well. Because it's one thing to be a con man and there are lots of con men running around and they just, you know, rip people off and then they disappear. Mm. But, but th- like, that's serious dedication. Mm. You, you stick around for 10 years and torture these people. You don't just take their money like, right, how do I get more of their money? Mm-hmm. How do I make their life as miserable as possible? Yeah. In the process, like that—that—that's—that's that's disturbed. Oh yeah, yeah. He's not right, and he's not well. Um, yeah. So if I find out what ended up happening to him, or we get any updates <laughs> down the track, I'll absolutely be sharing that information with you, listeners, and of course with you, Caleb Bond. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. This Pleasure. has been a hoot, um, and I can't wait for people to hear this episode. Do you have any parting words you'd like to share? Uh, don't be as stupid as these people are, I think. And don't be the scammer either. I mean, it, it, it does make you think, though, like how many people are there out there that have this ability in them? Mm. Like they could do it if they wanted to and they don't or they never mm. discover that ability. Mm-hmm. Like uh, how is it that you wake up one morning and go, oh, I can fool people easily? How do people discover that? And how many people haven't discovered that they've got it? Yeah. Bloody good thing they haven't. Good question. Something for us all to ponder. All right. We will maybe have you back on the pod in the next couple of weeks again, Caleb. Sounds like a plan. We'll talk to you then. All right. You go have fun at Sky News. (laughs) Thank you, mate. You're looking sharp. Bye. Listener.